Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, history friends, patrons all, and welcome to the latest episode of the Korean War. Before we get... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Get started here. I have to make a general announcement. The first announcement I have to make is that if you hear a serious amount of background noise going on, that is because I have the door and the window open. Well, because it's sweltering in here and it's the height of Irish summer, which I realise isn't that big a deal to most people, but to those of us born on this small island and used to its rather unwarm climate, when any temperatures in excess of the teens come along, it gets a bit much for all of us. So rather than suffering and melting in in my recording studio, I thought I'd just leave the doors and windows open. So it shouldn't be too bad if it gets really bad, I'll just work it out in the editing afterwards. But in any case, if you hear any weird noises or birds singing, that's why. The second thing is a bit more somber. If you are subscribed to the When Diplomacy Fails newsletter, and you should be, then you'll know that I made this announcement already, but I have come to the decision, 
regretfully, to postpone the release of the 30 Years War book from November of this year to June of next year. I do this for several reasons, but the main reason is that we just have too much stuff coming up. And there's too many things for me to kind of catch up on and to work towards for everything to be finished on time. If you have pre-ordered this book and this really annoys you, then that's fine. You can email me and I'll organize a refund through PayPal pronto, with no hard feelings, of course. I am, of course, sorry that this happened. I wish this didn't happen, but as is per usual, I managed to underestimate the workload that was ahead of me. I really did think that I'd be able to get the book finished quicker than I did, but it's fine. It will still be finished, and you will still be able to access it just about half a year later than you expected. Because we also had the Versailles Anniversary Project coming out in November, and because I haven't started it yet, I figured it would be easier for myself to postpone the book as well. This way, instead of having a rushed book and an incomplete series in the podcast, we'll have both of them finished and properly worked on in good enough time. So those are the two things I wanted to announce You may or may not care, but just so you guys know. Oh, also, in case I forget, those of you that have pre-ordered the book, you will be able to now get a free bottle opener and a free pen thrown in because you are so wonderful and patient. And if you were to pre-order the book in the month of July, then you will also get that too. So head on over to WDF Podcast's shop and you will be able to get that book. Or just click on the link in the description. Alrighty, guys, let's start this episode. It's a good one. Enjoy. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 27. Last time we introduced you guys to the process and experiences of the UN member states, who collectively decided to provide military delegations to aid the Americans in the police action against North Korea's act of aggression. This initiative to fulfill the promise of the UN's charter was a complex process involving much coercion, diplomacy, and consultation with the national interest as we saw last time. The Allied interventions met with great success, to the extent that the 38th parallel was crossed on the 9th of October 1950, beginning what began to seem more and more like an invasion and conquest of the North Korean state. Those Allied nations that were uncomfortable with such a policy voiced their opposition in light of the Chinese anxiety, but General MacArthur, General MacArthur, told his president, as much as he told his aides, that such a Chinese intervention was impossible, because the Chinese, MacArthur insisted, were just bluffing. When these bluffs poured across the Allied lines over Thanksgiving and late November, though, it was clear that a new, terrifying phase of the war had begun. And this this was not what the Allied states had wanted or signed up for. They were both greatly concerned and greatly offended that the Americans had proved so disastrously incorrect in their estimation of Chinese inclinations, and that General MacArthur had been permitted to behave like such a loose cannon. With these elements of the story in mind, we left our narrative in the last episode on the news that General Walton Walker had died, and that he was replaced by Matthew Ridgway, an appointment which was soon to take on monumental importance for those men involved in the conflict. As it stood in late December 1950 though, the Allied soldiers were freezing, demoralised, and they just wanted to go home. 
We will resume this point of the narrative in future episodes, but I felt it would be beneficial for us to tackle the story from a different perspective today, since I realise that my narrative has been very American-centric up to this point. With this in mind, in this episode I plan to detail the motives and experiences of two foreign delegations in particular, those of Turkey and New Zealand, with a cameo appearance from the British, who we'll talk about more in the next episode. If this all sounds good then, let's begin, as I take you to a very mysterious place, that of Turkey, in 1945. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails' His Book on the Thirty Years' War. Yes indeed, as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, When Diplomacy Fails' His Book on the Thirty Years' War coming out and you should absolutely pre-order it, because if you do so in the month of July, you will get a pen and a bottle opener thrown in for free along with the signed book. Simply click on the link in the description of this episode and you can be guaranteed that come June, a signed version of the book will be coming your way. I'm really, really excited about this book. Even though I know it's been delayed, I think it will be worth it in the end. And if you are a fan of my writing style, if you're a fan of the way I present history to you guys, then reading it, rather than just listening to it, could be right up your street. So do check that out. Head to wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop, or click on the link in the description below. For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War could then be yours. So the song of the week this week is everyone's favourite Bing doing a song called Galway Bay. It was released in 1949. Enjoy it guys and we'll be back with episode 27 of The Korean War. If you ever go across the sea to Ireland Then maybe at the closing of your day You will sit and watch the moon rides over Claddagh and watch the barefoot gossoons at their play just to hear again the ripple of the trout stream the women in the meadows making hay and to sit beside a turf fire in the cabin And see the sun go down on Galway Bay For the breeze is blowing o'er the seas from Ireland are perfumed by the heather as they blow And the women in the upland digging praties Speak a language that the strangers do not know For the strangers came and tried to teach us their way They scorned us just for being what we are But they might as well go chasing after moonbeams Or light a penny candle from a star
UN Radio. We continue with the list of contributions to the UN forces in Korea, which was released today at World Headquarters. On June 29th, Australia ordered the naval vessels Shoalhaven and Bataan to Korean waters. On July 25th, Turkey placed under the unified command a combat force of 4,500 men. August 4th, South Africa made available a fighter squadron, including air crews and ground personnel. And this concludes our news bulletin to the Caribbean area. In March 1945, the Soviet Union sent Turkey a troubling cable, claiming that Moscow wouldn't renew the 1925 Treaty of Friendship with Ankara unless concessions were granted. The USSR established what would be the pattern of Turkish-Soviet relations for the rest of the century. The People's Party had led the fledgling Turkish Republic through a policy of neutrality during the Second World War, but even though Ankara neglected to pick a side, the impact of the war on the development of Turkey was disastrous. In his article on the Turkish Brigade in the Korean War, which of course we'll be making great use of for this episode, the historian John Lipp noted on the impact of the war on Turkey when he wrote, in 1945, agricultural output was only 20% above its 1932 level. The war seriously hampered foreign trade, shrinking markets for Turkish exports, and cutting off the supply of foreign capital and imports of industrial goods. The inflation rate exceeded 300% for most of the period. Black marketeering and hoarding were rampant. Military spending, which rose during the war and remained high in the post-war period, put an additional burden on the government and the people. Amidst this disastrous backpedalling of progress came a questioning of Turkey's role in the world and her internal policies and practices. New ideas on economics revolving around the notions of free trade, American-sponsored investment and private ownership of the country's industries led in turn to the creation of new political ideals, which then crystallised in 1946 with the formation of a new political group, the Turkish Democratic Party. At the head of this party was the stalwart Turkish politician Mahmoud Kalal Bayar, who led the Democratic Party in opposition for the rest of the 1940s. By 1950, Bayar's run in opposition had apparently been impressive enough for his party to sweep away the old order and establish a landslide victory in the country's first truly free elections. Bayar would sit as President of Turkey from May 1950, a mere month before the Korean War broke out. To understand the Turkish involvement in a place as far removed and alien to Turkish culture and concerns as Korea, we have to appreciate the importance of the late 1940s in shaping how Turkey saw itself and the world. When the Soviets claimed in March 1945 that they would not renew the old Treaty of Friendship, alarm bells went off in Ankara that did not stop ringing until the fall of the Berlin Wall. Throughout the Cold War period, Turkey was the bulwark, or the plug in the dike, that would halt the expansion of communism into the Middle East. It was the critical land bridge into such a sensitive area, and it was also strategically vital, as the development of the relationship with Washington saw American tactical missile bases be established in the country during the 1950s. The 1940s were indeed a difficult time to be a Turk, as the Soviets continued their pressure on the country, even going so far in 1947 as to mobilise troops along their border with Turkey. While the Soviet invasion was far from imminent, Turkish leaders were sensitive to the fact that Turkey had been drifting in international relations for too long, 
and that it was time to approach the West for some kind of alliance. Further to this point, Turkish leaders saw definite advantages to a commitment from the United States in particular for the defence of Turkey in the event of hostilities with the Soviets. Washington by no means shooed the Turks away. In 1946, the US battleship Missouri sailed through the Dardanelles Straits, seemingly sending a message to the belligerent Soviets, and the message inherent in the Truman Doctrine the following year was clearly developed with both Greece and Turkey in mind. Under the Truman Doctrine in 1947 and the Marshall Plan in 1948, the Turkish relationship with America acquired a new importance. These two programs formed the basis for Turkey's situation that they could bring about. The country was in desperate need of foreign investment and needed help rebuilding its economy and reputation among the trading nations of the world. Turkish leaders were helped by the fact that American interest in Turkey intensified in 1949 with the formation of NATO and the Soviet's detonation of an atomic bomb. Turkish leaders saw entry into NATO as the basis of close relations with the West and felt that only full membership in the Atlantic Alliance would guarantee a formal American commitment to Turkish security. Yet the process for Turkey's entry into NATO would be anything but smooth. It became apparent that an extension of the alliance to Turkey was a bridge too far for some NATO members, since they resented the idea of having to defend allies along such a wide front. The incumbent Turkish People's Party that was then in power thus attempted to leverage its relationship with the Americans as a backdoor of getting into NATO. The Turkish ambassador told Dean Acheson in August 1950, a couple of months after Turkey's contribution to the defence of Korea had been announced, that there was... A growing feeling among Turkish leaders and the people that Turkey should be included in the European collective security arrangement. The Turks feel that they could contribute materially to the collective strength of Western Europe and, on the other hand, believe that Turkey's inclusion would enhance its own security. Yet, since Turkish soldiers had yet to actually arrive in Korea, such an appeal mostly fell on deaf ears. In September 1950, then the Turks tried again, this time emphasising their very real concerns and fears about the political drift of their country to the American ambassador in Ankara, whereupon President Bayar asked, Does your government not realise that we Turks will consider further deferment of favourable action on our request by the Atlantic Pact powers as a refusal and as unwillingness to accept us as equal partners in meeting jointly any threat of aggression? We have shown our good faith by forthright action towards meeting the Korean crisis. I fear, frankly, that if the Atlantic Pact Council of Foreign Ministers turns down our request, our morale will be seriously affected. We feel our very future is at stake. Indeed, it seemed that neither Washington nor NATO appeared particularly interested in what Turkey had to say, in spite of the fact that Bayar had done his best since taking office to communicate the importance of the West to Turkey's future, not merely through words, but also through deeds. Turkey's UN delegation had proved highly active during the period, since they understandably wished to be seen as an equal partner in the international community, and not just a pawn in the Cold War. For example, Turkey was a member of the United Nations Commission on Korea, which made the recommendation that the Security Council take military action against North Korea. From the beginning, the Bayar government supported the Security Council decision of intervention on South Korea's behalf. As Turkey desired a strong alliance with the Western powers, participation in the Korean War meant not only membership in its Western bloc, 
but it also signalled the confirmation of Western ideals and the westernising reforms of the Republican government. By this point in the country's history, the newly emerging third generation of Turkey's leaders believed that the failure to participate in the United Nations effort in Korea would reduce their country's international standing and options, and they argued that participation in a foreign war would now bring advancement and economic growth rather than hamper it. On the 25th of July 1950 then, President Bayar announced to both the United Nations and the wider world that Turkey would be contributing men to the Korean struggle. A comparatively large brigade of 4,500 men would be sent. This brigade arrived in October 1950 without any weapons, but with much enthusiasm. It was a moment of great significance in the young republic's history, and a real opportunity for its soldiers to distinguish themselves before the eyes of the world. They quickly established their resolve in one of the bloodiest battles of the war, amidst the deterioration of the Allied situation in the face of Chinese human waves in December 1950. The Battle of Kuno-ri took place at the Chosen Reservoir, in the far northeastern portion of the Korean Peninsula, at a time when Chinese waves were becoming the norm, and chaos among the Allied command was terribly common. Kunu-ri was a turning point in how the Turks saw themselves, largely because the common Turkish soldier so distinguished himself in battle, that he provided invaluable political capital for President Bayar at home. At one point in the battle, surrounded by the Chinese and low on ammunition, the Turks had fixed bayonets and stormed a Chinese position. The American commander refused to believe the Turkish claims and sent his own inspectors, who counted 900 bayoneted Chinese. For this gruesome accomplishment, the Turkish brigade was awarded the American Distinguished Unit Citation. Seriously impressed by the Turks, American commanders commended them for their positive, aggressive, warlike qualities, and said that, It is through such conduct that the Turkish soldier has such a high reputation throughout Korea as a splendid fighting man. Thanks to his fighting men, President Bayar made great political capital out of the Turkish distinction in battle. In December, he was able to repress the Turkish Organization for Peace, which, in line with government opposition parties, had criticised the intervention in Korea as adventurism. Bayar could justifiably point to the fame that the Turkish soldier had acquired by fighting side by side its Western allies, and he believed, correctly as it turned out, that by proving the value of the Turkish soldier to Western efforts, his own ambitions would be rewarded. This reward finally came only once the Korean War stagnated and descended into tit-for-tat skirmishes, and the Western powers were able to concentrate upon matters other than the Korean Peninsula. Their attentions turned to Turkey, and the question of the North Atlantic Treaty. By the actions of the Turkish soldier and the demonstrated loyalty of Bayar's government, it was plain to those NATO allies that Turkey was a nation worth allying with. In September 1951 it was announced that the once sceptical British and French would no longer block the Turkish application to NATO, and within days, the Turkish Democratic Party's official newspaper carried the following remark on this success. There has been a great and honourable share of the blood of our Korean heroes in the signatories ink used for the invitation extended to Turkey for her entry into the Atlantic community. Today's Turkey is a source of power for peace and not a liability. For the next few years, the Turkish-American relationship waxed and waned. For his part, President Bayar was able to make 
sufficient capital out of the Korean War and NATO successes to win two more political terms. Unfortunately, in a reflection of the still fragile political state of the Young Republic, the military launched a coup in 1960, deposing President Bayar and executing several members of his government, including his Prime Minister. Despite this unfortunate end and his repressive policies at home while he fought to get the political result he wanted abroad, Bayar's impact upon Turkey was profound. Under his leadership, Turkey moved steadily out of its isolation and identified itself squarely with NATO, and he even managed to heal the rift with the Soviets, if only temporarily. In 1955, then under a new chairman, the Soviets offered to renew that 1925 Treaty of Friendship with Turkey after all. Turkey was also inclined to take a leading role in the establishment of regional defence arrangements such as the Balkan Pact of August 1954 and the Baghdad Pact of February 1955. The strategic relationship with the West infamously reached its apex with the advent of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1961. At that point, with American missile bases in Turkey well established, the Soviet rationale for selecting Cuba as its base for similar purposes set in motion a catastrophic deterioration in Soviet-American relations, which came closer than ever before to total disaster. Turkey's relationship in that crisis is often overlooked or misunderstood, but its origins can definitely be found in the Korean War. If the Korean War had not provided President Bayar and the Turkish contingent with the opportunity to prove their value and importance to the Western strategic position, then the progress of events would likely have turned out very differently. Thus, the Turkish contingent and its impact on that republic's government can be seen in my view as a further example of this forgotten conflict's forgotten importance for modern diplomatic affairs. This is UN Radio again. We take you now to Ontario, Canada. I saw men firing rifles, Bren guns, mortars and throwing hand grenades. They were shooting at tank targets with American bazookas and learning how to lay and blow up mines and carry out demolitions with high explosives. The special force soldiers I visited are members of the 2nd Battalion of the famous Royal Canadian Regiment. Hello, Paris. This is UN Radio calling Paris. Come in, please. A battalion of French troops has left Europe to join the UN forces in Korea. This morning, I watched them receive the flag of the United Nations under which they are to fight. The officer in command of the battalion received the blue and white UN banner from General Moncla. He kissed the flag in the traditional French gesture, and the band then plays the Marseillaise. With the brief ceremonies thus completed, the men marched off, detachment by detachment, in sinuous lines that vanished into the morning mist. If the contribution made by Turkey is as forgotten as it was important for what transpired in the region thereafter, then the contribution made by the Australian and New Zealand military delegations must also rank up there for similar reasons. Post-war Australasia was awash with war plans and theories over how to combat what was interpreted as the most likely war scenario with the Soviet Union. Under such circumstances, the Soviets would treat the Middle East and Western Europe as their stomping ground, with the Far East holding far less importance. To an extent, this left the Australian and New Zealand governments in the position of both relying on the United States for the defence of their interests in Asia and on building up their own defences in the region. In time, this commonality of purpose in Asia between Washington, Canberra and Wellington 
led to what is known today as ANZUS, or the Australian, New Zealand and US Alliance. With some interruptions, this alliance continues to serve as the baseline for treaty agreements between the former Dominions and the United States, and you shouldn't be too surprised to note that such an alliance had its genesis in the Korean War. When the Second Boer War had broken out in 1898, it was Punch that presented the image of a lion marching with its cubs following dutifully behind. This image of the British lion marching as its Dominion cubs followed would not be repeated during the Korean War. While it would be incorrect to state flatly that the Dominions of Australia and New Zealand no longer looked to Britain as their mother country, there was some naivety in Washington regarding the extent of these feelings and what they could compel the two countries to do. In the end, Australia didn't waste much time. As part of her navy, she had a rotating destroyer presence around Korea, and one such destroyer was actually in Hiroshima when the war broke out. In addition, Australia also had a fighter squadron based nearby South Korea, complete with P-51 Mustangs, and this was promptly offered to the UN base in Japan, as were several transportation aircraft. New Zealand also played a role, though its comparative lack of interest in the region meant that it took another week to make its presence felt. Wellington determined to send two frigates to Korean waters, and thus the vessels Tutira and Pukaki set sail on the 3rd of July. Following this naval contribution in league with both the British and Australians, it appeared that Wellington and Canberra had done enough. Indeed, as we'll see in the next episode, London dallied for at least a week over the notion of sending soldiers to Korea. For a time, neither New Zealand nor Australia felt especially compelled to donate their manpower to the Korean cause, but a plea by the UN Secretary-General Trig Verlee on the 15th of July changed the debate somewhat. Pointing to the deteriorating military situation in Korea, it was put to the governments of the United Nations member states to consider sending more than just portions of their fleets. This speech was the watershed moment for many of the states, including Turkey, who as we saw accelerated her operations and announced the commitment of a force a week later on the 22nd of July. In Wellington, the invasion of South Korea by Kim Il-sung's forces was greeted with pessimism and surprise. It had long been assumed that the Soviet Union would not allow its satellite on the peninsula to instigate a war, since this would distract Moscow from what were believed to be more important concerns elsewhere, like in Europe. This was a similar perception to how much of NATO saw Korea before the war broke out, that the peninsula was easy for the United States to reinforce with its nearby base in Japan, that it was marginal to the Soviet interest, and that its status quo was by no means disadvantageous to the Soviets, were all reasons to support the thesis that the North would not invade, because the North was directed by Stalin, and Stalin would not invade. Indeed, this belief system has been carried down through the historiography, where historians do logical somersaults in their efforts to explain why the war broke out at all, when it was so disadvantageous to Stalin's strategic interests. Some claim Stalin didn't start it, but that Kim Il-sung managed to manipulate the Soviet leader into agreeing to the attack. Others reason Stalin only gave it his blessing because he believed the West wouldn't intervene, and they used the chronic underinvestment from Washington in Syngman Rhee's regime to back up this thesis. You already know where I stand on this debate. If Stalin had in fact not expected the Western intervention, if he had indeed been manipulated into this war by Kim, the unanswerable question is why he allowed the Soviet delegate to the UN Security Council to continue to boycott the one institution that could help prevent such a conflict from developing 
into the Western Crusade against communism, which it shortly became. It was completely uncharacteristic of Stalin to make such mistakes, just as it was unlike him to be moved towards a policy that was not in his direct interests. We spent more than enough time explaining this thesis in the past, and the true reasons in my view that the Korean War progressed as it did, but it is interesting nonetheless to observe that in June 1950, Stalin's contemporaries held similar opinions and expectations of the Soviet leader to those that many historians have maintained to this day. If Australia's intervention in the Korean War can be explained by its pre-existing commitments to the Pacific and its evidently more active involvement in the American actions in Japan, for example, then the announcement on the 26th of July by the Australian Joint Chiefs of Staff to approve of the sending of its battalions to Hiroshima to aid in the UN's duties shouldn't strike us as too surprising. What interests me more than the decision by Canberra, no offence to my Australian listeners of course, was the steps taken by New Zealand, rather than the steps taken by Australia. Where Australia had greater resources and manpower to direct its Pacific and Asian interests, such as they were, New Zealand had far fewer choices and options. In spite of this, the record will show that New Zealand committed its own force before its larger and more powerful neighbours and allies, and not only that, but Wellington beat them to the post by only a few hours. As you may be aware, there's an interesting story as to why this was the case, and we plan to tell it all here. The odds were certainly stacked against New Zealand's intervention. Indeed, even its foreign policy, controlled by the Department of External Affairs, was described by one historian as rudimentary in 1950, adding that since Wellington was lacking her own diplomatic posts in Asia, New Zealand depended for information on Britain and Australia and on press reports, which never gave her policymakers more than a superficial understanding of political developments in Korea. These challenges in diplomacy didn't prevent the New Zealand Premier Sidney Holland from preempting New Zealand's cabinet's decision to send troops. Sidney Holland took over from the stalwart Premier Peter Fraser in December 1949 and inherited the latter's approach to New Zealand's foreign policy. Fraser had even implemented a controversial compulsory military training policy in the last year of his political reign, designed above all to prepare New Zealand for its commitments towards its military responsibilities. In the words of the historian Ian McGibbon in his article on the New Zealand contribution to the Korean War, which we have made great use of of course, McGibbon wrote, Under existing defence policy, New Zealand's armed forces were being prepared to join the Allies in the Middle East at the outset of a war with the Soviet Union, the so-called Middle Eastern Commitment. Based on an assessment of likely Soviet objectives in a hot war, this commitment had been given in 1945 by the Labour government, under Peter Fraser, after a politically difficult referendum endorsed the compulsory military training necessary for its fulfilment. This detail had important consequences for how New Zealand would respond. First, the old plan to supply troops to the Middle East would be ruined if the Korean War was, as some suspected, just a distraction from a strike in Europe or the Middle East. Second, the setup of New Zealand's armed forces once the bill had passed had essentially booked Wellington into a corner. She didn't have space for a small armed detachment as the Korean situation required. Only the New Zealand expeditionary force that the old war plan in the Middle East had demanded. Thus, New Zealand's military was composed of mutually dependent trainees and 
territorial army reservists, rather than a self-supporting force of a few thousand men and a commander like other countries were able to scramble up and send. Following the commitment of the two frigates to the Korean effort, there was also a feeling that New Zealand had done enough, and that, relative to her size, she had done far more in early July 1950 than the 39 other member states who had also voiced their moral support for South Korea, but so far neglected to send any aid. We are thus left with the puzzle of trying to explain how New Zealand's government went from cautiously uninvolved with Korean adventures to beating its larger neighbour to the post with the commitment of soldiers for Korea on the 24th of July. In this three-week period, as it happened, a great deal changed to alter the mood in Wellington's government, and we're going to examine that three-week period now. In particular, there was the pressure campaign launched by New Zealand's ambassador to the United States, Carl Berendson, who sent regular cables home, insisting on the importance of supporting Washington in this venture. On the 17th of July, three days after the UN Secretary General had made his speech pleading for armed aid from the member states, Ambassador Berendson insisted that the Americans were now regarding this incident, the Korean War, as a means of separating the sheep from the goats and of distinguishing those countries that can be relied upon from those who could not. The carrot was the so-called Pacific Pact, where the United States, Australia, New Zealand and a host of other friendly nations in the region would commit to mutual defence in the Pacific, and this carrot was repeatedly dangled in front of Wellington if it would only intervene in the Korean War with some force. Yet, some argued quite reasonably that New Zealand didn't need such an arrangement. If anything, the Korean War had shown that Washington wouldn't stay away from Asia if such conflicts broke out in the future, and thus, if she was guaranteed to come to Asia anyway, why did New Zealand need a treaty that would guarantee an American intervention there? Britain's secretary for the Commonwealth happened to be visiting Wellington at the outbreak of the war, and he had reasoned that such an armed display might bring about a sense of goodwill, but in the long term would only bring greater costs than benefits. By this point, in mid-July 1950, the British had yet to commit soldiers of their own. In the end, though, it seems that Ambassador Berendson's pressure campaign won out. In view of New Zealand's long-term dependence on the United States for security in the Pacific, a sympathetic response to the United States' call for help was required. A US commitment to defend New Zealand would become even less attainable than it had previously if New Zealand turned her back on the United States during her present hour of need. For this reason, the Secretary for the Commonwealth was told on the 20th of July that New Zealand could not refuse if the United States wanted her to send troops, even if the British decided to stand aside in this matter. Ambassador Berendson's contribution thus forms one significant pillar of the debate in favour of intervention. It is interesting for us to note the similarities of New Zealand's rationale with that of Turkey's reasoning behind intervention. Much like Ankara, Wellington was motivated by thoughts of participation in an alliance, and they believed that by acting in favour of Washington, the Americans would look favourably upon their strategic interests in the future. Indeed, the cases of Turkey and New Zealand hold further similarities in the interest both states had in seeing the United Nations succeed. If New Zealand failed to act when an act of naked aggression right under the nose of the United Nations took place, then Korea could be the first of many signature defeats of the promises that the United Nations had once made. As Ian McGibbon noted, Korea could be for the United Nations what Manchuria had been for the League of Nations. 
In the latter case, an act of unprovoked aggression perpetrated by the Japanese went unchecked in 1931, and from that event the 1930s delivered a succession of death blows to the league's prestige. Neither Turkey nor New Zealand wanted the United Nations to suffer a similar fate, for nations on the fringe of the Western world as New Zealand was, or for nations at the crossroads of it as Turkey was, there was much to be gained by investing and supporting the United Nations. Standing aloof from any challenges to its authority or maintaining an apathetic policy on the other hand, could well implicate Wellington in its demise. In late June to early July, we have seen that the decision to send ships was made in cooperation with the British as much as the Americans, but land forces were a different, more sensitive matter. Historians sometimes tend to note that New Zealand's loyalty to the mother country evoked a general passion for military intervention by London's side, but the reality was that the British influence didn't compel New Zealand to send troops, only her two ships. New Zealand was caught between the need to send a force large enough to preserve some measure of its identity, but also small enough that it could retain its commitment to defence in the Middle East. This was possible according to the Auckland Star, a paper most in favour of intervention, since, as this paper put it, it is not the participation of New Zealand troops in the fighting in Korea that will be remembered. It is not the participation of New Zealand troops in the fighting in Korea that will be remembered in the future, but the fact that we were prepared to fight. A smaller force would achieve New Zealand's foreign policy goals of improving their relationship with Washington, while it would also signal genuine support of the UN's policies of opposing aggression. Yet the Prime Minister Sidney Holland engaged in what New Zealand's Secretary for External Affairs described as disheartening shilly-shallying. Another way of saying that they were procrastinating, in case you didn't know. This shilly-shallying came about due to Holland's hesitation to act without London's similar response. In spite of the recommendations of some that Wellington should proceed independently for the sake of its own policy interests, a latent reverence, not necessarily for the British, but for the idea that the Commonwealth should act as one, held Sidney Holland back. When he received word on the 21st of July from Clement Attlee, Britain's Prime Minister, that the British were consulting with Washington before acting in Korea, Holland felt further compelled to hold back for the moment. Events then moved quickly, for on the 24th of July, Sidney Holland was told that, after some intensive meetings between the British and American representatives, the United States had communicated the importance of having the British on side. Because they had been so darned convincing in their arguments, among other reasons, Attlee's government had determined to send troops. Thus, New Zealand's Prime Minister was informed late in the afternoon of the 26th of July, New Zealand time, that in an afternoon session of Parliament on the 27th of July, Britain's decision to send troops would be announced. In addition, it was suggested that New Zealand and Australia could commit a brigade of troops to this British force, and Attlee intimated that per Sidney Holland's approval, he would announce this to Parliament. Outraged, Sidney Holland now kicked it into high gear. Ignoring the lazy protests of the British High Commissioner in Wellington, Sidney Holland spent the rest of the 26th of July in frenzied meetings with the different departments, determined to push through approval for the commitment of 1,000 troops to Korea. Finally, a total of three hours before the British announced their contribution in Parliament, Sidney Holland announced that New Zealand would send this force to aid their UN allies in Korea. So why had Sidney Holland reacted so strongly to the British decision to announce not merely a British commitment, but also one from New Zealand and Australia? 
Well, two factors explain the New Zealand Premier's frenzied activity and his apparently spiteful decision to beat London and Canberra to the punch, even while Britain's very action had spurred him on in the first place. In both factors, the image of New Zealand was at stake. In the first place, if Sydney Holland wanted New Zealand to be taken seriously by its American and other Pacific allies, then an element of spontaneity would have to be present in New Zealand's foreign policy. The Far East was, after all, a region of primary importance to New Zealand more than it was to Britain, and by allowing London to speak for her, New Zealand compromised her freedom of action and made her enthusiasm for foreign policy concerns appear far less pronounced than they actually were. Second, and my Australian and New Zealand listeners will likely get a kick out of this, Sydney Holland wanted to ensure that the announcement regarding New Zealand's commitment of soldiers was made before that of its Australian neighbour. By acting first, New Zealand could at least distinguish itself from Australian policy, even if both states held largely the same interests. As it happened, Sydney Holland achieved both of his objectives. Thanks to the time differences and the speedy nature of his decision, the New Zealand Premier preempted Australia and Britain. And as the records stand to this day, New Zealand's contribution of land forces to the Korean War came officially before that of its cousins. Thanks to Sydney Holland then, the intervention in the Korean War became just another thing for the Aussies and the Kiwis to argue about. Of course, New Zealand did provide a genuine contribution to the war, and thus like the others, they distinguished themselves in battle. In the event, it took Holland's government five days to find the volunteers necessary to fill the quota, though New Zealand's force wouldn't land in Korea for another five months. Sydney Holland would also get the Pacific Pact that he wanted, since in September 1951, ANZUS, the alliance binding Australia, New Zealand and the United States together, was signed. Holland was thus successful in his foreign policy, and he managed to make great political credit out of New Zealand's contribution in the eyes of his neighbours. Indeed, the date of the signing of the alliance was just another thing that New Zealand had in common with Turkey. Just like Ankara, Wellington had benefited from its contribution to the Korean War through the signing of political agreements which it had long sought. The Korean War thus reflected not just an increasing awareness of the importance of American power in apparently disconnected parts of the world, in Southeast Europe and the South Pacific, but also the new desire in Washington to formulate stronger relations with its strategically important powers. The Truman administration, it is clear, was already thinking beyond the Korean War and of the Cold War to come. Next time, this analysis of the players outside of Washington continues as we spend some time in London looking at how the British contribution to the war was debated, then approved, and then presented to the world. It's a story of grand ambition, of Anglo-American tension, so I'll hope you'll join me then. And I hope you've enjoyed this very different episode, as we watched just a few of the Avengers assemble to take on the Soviet-Korean colossus. Until next time, history friends, I have been Zach, and you've been listening to episode 27 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.